You'll have FedCoin, JP Morgan Coin, Bitcoin, Tether. You have the right to choose how to denominate your labor, your earnings, your savings. And I think that's the future that we're in for is this era of currency choice. And thank God for Bitcoin. Hello there. How are you all doing? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I am using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And before we get into the interview today, I have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. And even though they've been with me for a year, I have not sold a single sat with Gemini. I'm only buying. I'm a hodler. But I have been buying Bitcoin with them. Not only have I been buying the dips through Gemini, but I also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin, and I'm yet to see a better or easier interface for buying Bitcoin. With a streamlined trading view, you have access to all the tools you need to understand Bitcoin and start investing, all through one clear, attractive interface. And Gemini are now running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, it's sportsbet.io, the very best place for online gaming because they're badasses and they accept Bitcoin. Now, we are over halfway through the season. Liverpool have just picked up their first trophy. Tottenham are struggling as ever. This season is going as planned. But how's it going to finish? Do you know how it's going to finish? Will Liverpool win the title? Will they snatch it away from City? Who's going to win the league? Who's going to win the Champions League? Who knows? Well, anyway, if you want to take a bet, sportsbet.io has got you covered. And not just with football. They cover tennis, motorsports, US sports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, there's always a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. That is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, it's level. Now, as the world migrates from traditional walled garden financial rails to Bitcoin, Level has rebuilt its Bitcoin trading app to become the first full suite Bitcoin banking app. The Bitcoin revolution isn't just about investing dollars. It's about replacing them. So while other apps help you to buy Bitcoin, the Level app lets you use your Bitcoin for daily life. You can get paid in Bitcoin, you can spend Bitcoin anywhere, and you can even earn Bitcoin rewards. All of this is alongside a traditional fiat account, so you can manage your Bitcoin alongside your traditional currencies. Now, Level are reserving 500 beta slots for WBD listeners ready to go all in and bank in Bitcoin. If you want to find out more, head over to level.co forward slash WBD, which is lvl.co forward slash WBD for info and early access. Also, today we have Casa. Whether you've just bought your first SaaS or you're a Bitcoin pro, you need to protect your investment. And the only person who should be in charge of your Bitcoin and your financial freedom is you. And securing your Bitcoin does not have to be difficult because Casa makes it so easy. Getting started is super simple. You just download the app, create an account, and enjoy a 30-day free trial. And if you need some assistance, it is just a click or phone call away. Casa has best-in-class customer support and free online resources to support you. 
Now, 12 Canada recently showed us the importance of self-custody and taking control of your money when they froze protesters' finances with no warning. Take your financial freedom into your hands by self-custodying your Bitcoin so it can never be frozen without your consent. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security and get total peace of mind. You can find out more at keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Nick, hi. How are you, man? Great to see you, Pete. Good to see you, man. Uh, two years ago, just over two years ago, October 19, we first met here in LA. That's right, in the Open Note offices. Yeah, my little, little, my little trolley. A lot, a lot smaller uh, operation back then. Yeah, wheeled my little trolley and put it up on the desk. We made a show, and and uh, two and a half years later, Bitcoin is a, a very high price compared to then. Uh, we have a nation state that's adopted Bitcoin. We have uh, a country, uh, a company in MicroStrategy who's just put fucking all the money they can into Bitcoin. It's a very different Bitcoin world. And you're also a published author. That's right. A lot has changed in uh, two and a half years. And we have a crew. Love Danny. Say hello, Danny. Hello. Are you mic'd up? I am mic'd up, yep. Can't hear you, man. Sorry. Always turn yourself off. Well, no, it's recording, but I am mic'd up. (laughs) He's so shy. (laughs) How's the book going, man? The book has done great. Uh, We've, uh, we're over 40,000 books now worldwide. Wow. Uh, just over a year after publishing and uh, up to about 14 foreign languages. Uh, three are live, several more on the way. Spanish is coming really soon. I, that, I'm really excited about that one. And uh, so, and you know, it's opened a lot of doors, which has been great. And uh, I'm really excited about the future. What's it like getting it translated? Because you won't speak the language. So things can get lost in translation? Yeah, they can. And you have to do your best in, in the due diligence process. And uh, Saifedean has been helpful in that a lot of the people that are approaching me have translated his book. And he's helped me, you know, this is a good translator. I got good feedback on this one. And this one maybe you need to be a little bit careful with. So, uh, you know, using resources like that to help me. And uh, But I've had really friendly uh, pu- publishing partners around the world that have made, you know, their translators available to me and, and have asked, the translators have been asking me a lot of questions because, as you know, the layered money terminology is new and it's uh, it doesn't have a precedent really. And so trying to translate that into different languages has been difficult. I actually uh, basically crowdsourced the title for the Spanish virgin, version Um it's uh, dinero en capas, which it's capas is like uh, a way to say steps and not necessarily layers, because if you use the word for layers, it it tends to refer to clothing. Okay. And so it just didn't make sense to use that layered word in Spanish. So little things like that, uh, you know, it's a it's a big process, but it's a learning one. Well, the title was super important. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the word layer is uh, the key here, and it's what we're trying to do with the book is reframe the way that we understand the monetary system away from balance sheets, away from accounting, away from a lot of these really complex and difficult to understand topics and just put it in first layer, second layer, third layer so that people understand exactly what type or what quality of money they have, how many counterparties they have involved in that money. And so, yeah, the word layer is right at the middle of it all. 
And the feedback has been, I know it's been good, uh, but anything surprising come out of it? Anything, somebody somewhere sent you a message, said, oh, you've read this book, it's changed my life? Yeah, uh, a few people from around the world have uh, definitely messaged me and said, this book has uh, made me uh, change my career. Uh, I've read this book four times. It's made me, you know, invest in Bitcoin and, you know, away from XYZ. Uh, I've had people that thanked me because it's the perfect book to give their parents and introduce them to what, why Bitcoin is so important to them, which has been great. And then also uh, policymakers, uh, you know, especially here in the United States, are referring to layered money as a potential guide to policymaking on Bitcoin and even central bank digital currency stablecoins. Have a look up there. What's going on today? We've gone from what, 36 and a half to 40. So this morning we had the jobs print and uh, it was a very uh, good number, like a, a big job ad here in the United States. So interest rates are moving, stocks are moving and, and Bitcoin's moving. That's really what, what the case is here right now is that Bitcoin is moving with the traditional markets and, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a very correlated way. Sometimes it's going down with stocks and sometimes it's going opposite from stocks. But when markets are moving, Bitcoin is moving right now. So that's what, you know, that's what's happening today. I didn't even know that. I saw the price earlier. Yeah, wow. That is a big green candle. Good work, Bitcoin. Um, and how's the book changed your life? You say it's opened up opportunities. It's changed my life pretty much in every way. So before the book, before starting to write the book, I was a bond trader in the traditional finance industry, uh, diving down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and basically a Bitcoin hot blog blogger hobbyist uh, in, in 2018, 2019. And then writing the book was a huge risk, as you know, for me and my family to basically go uh, without the job for the time that I was writing the book. And since the book has been published, uh, not only am I, you know, I've launched the Bitcoin layer, which is my new publication on Substack. People yep. can go find that at thebitcoinlayer.substack.com. That's where they'll find me now writing every week about Bitcoin transitioning to world reserve currency status. The layered money sets up, you know, this idea that Bitcoin can progress over the coming decades to world reserve currency. And the Bitcoin layer is here to narrate that here and now. I have another Bitcoin book in the works in terms of the, the research is starting. What? Tell on, me. Yeah. Is this an exclusive? Have you told or you announced Of this? course. And, you know, the, the announcing layered money was also done with you for the first time. It was, it was. And, um, yeah, I mean, really, I'm so motivated to educate about Bitcoin. As I've found that as my calling and you know, post-traditional finance world, I'm a Bitcoin writer. That is what people, the world has told me. They put, I put the energy out, they put it back, they gave it back to me that we want you to keep writing about Bitcoin. So of course, it's going to end up with another Bitcoin book and it's going to be a larger, um, I, I hope to, it to be more of a larger cultural uh, view of Bitcoin and how it's changed the world. Uh, not necessarily just what is Bitcoin as a currency and how does it fit into the, the history of currency, which was the first book. So, you know, maybe taking a, a, a bigger angle uh, lens view of Bitcoin going forward. And, but that, it's going to take a lot of work there. It's going to take reading 
uh, dozens of books from different eras, reading a lot of history again. And um, I want to also travel the world and sit down with real Bitcoiners in different places in the world and see how it's changed people's lives, getting outside of this American-centric price, uh, you know, which we're all victim of, right? We're looking at the price all the time, you and me both, but we're both also trying to build a better world using Bitcoin and that goes right into culture. And so, you know, I hope that the second book is going to be more to do with how the world is interacting with Bitcoin on a cultural level. Have you got a title yet? I do, but I can't. <laughs> I can't yet. It's way too early. Is it done or is it like a working title? It's a working title for sure. Are you going to DM me and discuss it with me? Sure, absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm super proud of you. This is amazing. I mean, how good is your life that you get to spend all your time reading, learning, writing, sharing your knowledge, now traveling the world to do this? Um, it's absolutely the best. And yeah. I know that's what it, part of what you love about your job. It doesn't feel like a job. You're just living your life and you're going around the world and talking to people and building a better Bitcoin future for us all. And I want, I want to do that too. And so being able to write at the Bitcoin layer and reach readers all around the world every week has been very special for me. Um, and the readers are constantly coming back to me with ideas, thoughts, um, and propelling me forward. My subscriber base is also growing, you know, daily, weekly, which the numbers speak for themselves. It means that people, more and more people want to read what I'm writing. And it's just incredibly motivational and special. Yeah. And it's very exciting when those numbers just keep ticking up and you can build a, a life for you and your family doing this, which is very cool. What a man. Um, so today I want to talk to you uh, about, I did a show recently with Lynn Alden uh, called The Currency Wars. And we were talking about uh, the fact that there are sovereign currencies crashing. There are changing relationships between nations, changing options for people with regards to currency. We've seen El Salvador adopt Bitcoin. Tether is used all around the world. Alex Gladstein has talked about how Tether is used in you know, economically challenging environments. Uh, we have China probably leading the race on CBDCs, but you correct me, but other many other nations considering this. Leading the race on time. On time, okay. Um, so that was, a, that was a fascinating show with Lim. We, we got it, we got in a lot of detail. It was very popular. Um, but I wanted to expand on it with you. I know, and especially on the CBDCs, I want to learn a bit more about that. But I want, also want to get your perspective on the future of money, the future of currency, where you think it's going. Uh, what is the role of Bitcoin? Is Bitcoin uh, going to be a reserve asset alongside uh, sovereign currencies? Will it replace sovereign currencies? There's like a whole lot to get into. I know many Bitcoiners think it will replace things like the dollar. I'm, I'm skeptical of that, but, but I want to have that conversation. But uh, as a starting point, can we just can we do like a full fill people pull in on CBDCs, like where we're at with them, as much as your knowledge as you can share. Uh, and, and we'll start super basic because you know what my audience is like, you know what my questions are like. Can we, can we just start by explaining to people what a CBDC is and, the, and what we know about the ones that exist? Right. CBDC means central bank digital currency. And they only exist today because at a certain point, after about five, six, seven years of Bitcoin's existence, 
central banks realized that they were threatened by this thing called Bitcoin. And they had to respond with their own version of something so as to not be buried in the ground over the coming decades. And that is, that's what CBDCs are. They're a central bank attempt at surviving as an institution because their old, their old rails, the system that they use, the old system is, has broken down basically since 2007, 2008. It's broken, it's in disrepair, and they realize that unless they come out with something new and copy Bitcoin really in some ways, um, they're going to be made irrelevant. So it's really a fight for survival. But then really early on in that process, the central banks also realize that we can actually use central bank digital currencies to gain power, to uh, assure our survival over the long term, to uh, exercise financial surveillance, to uh, disseminate universal basic income via legislative bodies. All these things that they realized along the way Basically, from about 2014 to 2016, this is when they realized they could do all these things with CBDCs. They decided to launch pilot projects, start writing papers about how can we roll out a central bank digital currency and how can we take advantage of this new technology, basically. And they barely acknowledge the word Bitcoin in any of their literature, right? They'll, at the beginning, they had to but then they started calling it blockchain, distributed ledger technology, and all that. And basically um, ignoring the fact that it's Bitcoin that started all this and tried to shy away from that. So what is a CBDC? Think about uh, people generally have two types of dollars uh, or government currency. They have paper money, which is issued by the central bank. It says Federal Reserve note on your paper dollars. Or... They have a checking account balance, like at Bank of America or Wells Fargo. The checking account balance is issued by a commercial bank, a private entity, and the paper money is issued by the central bank. So the, the uh, commercial banking deposit is actually a third layer of money in the layered framework, whereas the paper money is a second layer of money. And a central bank digital currency, if it was to be retail-facing, would essentially be the same thing as the paper money, but in digital token form. So it's like a digital cash issued by the central bank, but it's not the same thing as your Wells Fargo checking account digital dollars that you have on your screen. It's issued by the central bank, not a private bank. That would be a retail-facing central bank digital currency. The other side is a wholesale uh, CBDC, which would basically be a reserve tool that the banking system could use. So right now, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they have an account with the Fed where they keep reserves with the Fed. It's just a balance. That money could transition to a more, uh, you know, I guess blockchain, for lack of a better term, a blockchain-based system that uh, the banks use with each other to send dollars around the system. So you have the potential for a retail CBDC or a wholesale CBDC, I think you'll get both. And it depends what central banks we're talking about here. But I do think eventually you'll get both. And the more meaningful, impactful one will be the retail-facing one, which actually threatens commercial banks. Because if you're a postal worker and you get your paycheck from the government, 
they might give you Fed coins now and you fire Wells Fargo, you never have to deal with your checking account again because your money comes into your Fed coin wallet and you can spend it at McDonald's, you can spend it on your rent, you never have to deal with a commercial bank ever again. I believe China is going that direction where they're going to rid themselves of commercial banks. In Europe and United States, the central banks are very careful and aware of this fact that a, a central bank digital currency could make people fire their bank and threaten the banking industry. And so the ECB, for example, has said above a certain amount of digital euro, we will essentially tax you or levy a negative interest rate on that balance so you don't fire Barclays. Basically, you, you'll always keep money, some money in Barclays because if you keep all of it in digital euro, we'll charge you negative, negative balance so that uh, it, uh, you know, it's a motivator to not fire your commercial bank. And so that's a line that they, they have to dance around and they are very, like I said, they're very aware of this balance and um, it's one of the things that they're going to have to deal with. Okay, a lot to unpack here. Um, let's start with, because I've not heard somebody explain CBDCs as a way of saving central banks. Um, uh, is it really also a, uh, a defense mechanism of the state as well? Absolutely. It's, it's, it is the state. Uh, so the, Fed, the Federal Reserve is, has a charter that's been issued by the United States government. That charter can be changed at any time by the legislative bodies. The Fed is not going to be able to create a Fed coin without congressional approval and a presidential signature. They're just not going to be able to do that. It is the state. So the Fed will write papers. They say, we can do a Fed coin, and we've tested that technology, and it'll work. So, hey, Congress, will you write us a legislation that allows us to issue Fed coin? And then Congress will say, oh, wait, so... Yes, but we would like to put our own spin on it, and we'd like to give universal basic income via FedCoin. We'd like to pay our federal uh, contractors and employees via FedCoin, all that kind of stuff where the state then comes in and says, okay, this is now our tool. We are the ones that legislated FedCoin, so we get to decide what to do with it. So it's not just a central bank thing, although it's a tool that the institution uses to survive but then the then the state then which has issued the charter for the central bank itself the state then comes in and takes over and basically decides what to do with it okay so the long-term goal of a cbdc is it to eliminate all other versions of the dollar so there is a single blockchain for all movements of dollars say let's just say for now within the u.s so you would no longer have cash if you go to a, if you get paid on the CBDC, you go down to the store, you pay with the CBDC. Is that the eventual goal that it would eliminate all dollars? I don't think so because in China, yes, I do think that that is the goal. It, China has specifically passed a law that says no stablecoin linked to the renminbi may be issued by a private entity, right? So that's the opposite of what we see in the West where all these private entities are issuing dollar-linked stablecoins. In China, that is illegal now. So yes, in China, they might be trying to replace every version of the renminbi with this, this digital version of it. But in the United States and Europe, 
the evidence is that no, they don't want to do that. They don't want people to leave the commercial banking industry because also that's where credit comes from. So you need banks to lend money to people. And when they lend money, they create money out of thin air. Basically, they leverage whatever reserves they have. So that process of credit creation, they're not trying to replace that. Okay. I do think they're trying to get rid of paper money. I do think they're trying to increase their surveillance over the financial system and what people are doing with it. You know, because now, you know, people criticize, used to criticize Bitcoin for being criminal money. Um, It's not a very good one, but cash is obviously the best criminal money. Mm -hmm. So getting rid of cash uh, would be something that a government or a taxing body would be in favor of. But no, I don't think that the Fed is trying to replace every version of the dollar because that would imply replacing the commercial banking industry and all the trillions of deposits that Americans have with their commercial banks, their private banks. The transition to a CBDC sounds hugely complicated and painful. It is. It's going to be because basically you're forcing people to uh, let go of the previous way that they've used paper for their own privacy. That's one side of it. And then also you're introducing uh, competition. The Fed is now going to be in competition with Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and J.P. Morgan Chase um, where it hasn't been in the past. And so you're going to see um, the banking lobby have a, lot, uh, have a lot to say when FedCoin is um, you know, starting to get legislated. And at some point in this, if you have an account with Wells Fargo, you have a balance with them. When the CBDC rolls out, will that balance be taken from that blockchain? No, I, I don't believe so. I believe that in the future what you're going to have is uh, these checking account deposits will turn into stable coins issued by those banks. So you'll have a Wells Fargo coin, a JP Morgan coin, and a Fed coin. Basically, the Fed coin will be like your digital cash. It'll have zero yield. Your Wells Fargo coin might have some yield on it so that you'll, you'll be motivated to keep your money with Wells instead of just like if you put your money in the bank in a, in a CD, you can get 1% from the bank, but if you keep the paper in your pocket, you're guaranteed to get 0% nominal yield from that money. I think the same type of situation will, will, go, uh, will happen in the future where well, banks will have to offer an interest rate above FedCoin to just attract depositors. And does that mean, though, in your wallet, you would have a FedCoin balance, you would have a... Uh, Wells Fargo Wells coin Fargo. balance, yeah, and a Bitcoin balance. But then when you go to the store to buy something, will they accept all of the different dollars? They'll accept your, they'll accept your Fed coin and your Wells Fargo coin. Um, you know, and again, they'll accept the Wells Fargo coin because that will be, they, they are a mainline institution. They have a powerful lobby. They'll be in the first 20 banks that get to, you know, participate in this interoperable dollar blockchain, you know, um, universe that they that they're going to create for themselves. But then a smaller bank or like a tether might not be accepted at the Starbucks where a Wells Fargo coin might be. You know, so it's a 
it it's an it's an uncertain future, and all we're doing really here is projecting yeah, what, yeah. what's going to happen. Nobody really knows. But it sounds a little bit like the world of free banking with these different dollars issued by banks. It and it and it might be, and you know that's something that we see right now with stable coins. It is the er- this era of free banking, and it just hasn't been institutionalized yet in the United States. So we kind of think of Tether as this outside, you know, outside the United States system, but it's really just an evolution of free banking in the digital era. I wonder what it means for the likes of PayPal and Venmo. Will they just be processing and forwarding these various dollars or will there be a PayPal dollar? Yeah, I think that PayPal will have to have their own, you know, stable coin in this in this uh, universe where um, you know, if they want to participate in the global economy and have people send balances to each other um, outside of their own platform, they'll have to have some sort of uh, digital token that they use. And, and do we imagine that these separate digital dollars, these Wells Fargo coin, they will be, all be on the same blockchain or there will be individual blockchains? I believe that they'll, all, all private entities will issue their own version of this. And there, therein lies a lot of the challenge there. Well, Wells Fargo will hire some company to design their software. Um, JP Morgan Chase has already built their JPM coin uh, using, you know, using some third-party technology that they've licensed. So, um, and that comes, it, brings, it does bring it back to Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is this ledger that anyone can access and anybody can basically achieve the truth very quickly. Yep. And that gets lost when you talk about stable coins, central bank digital currencies, because then you have to, basically you're introducing trust. It's the difference of trust versus trustless. And so the whole stablecoin world will involve trust and uh, it'll also you know, require interoperability, which is its own nightmare. Yeah, I mean, we've seen, I think only this week, what was it, uh, Blockchain Bridge, Danny? Was that the one that was hacked, 230 yeah. million? Is, is that an interoperability company? I believe so, but I know very little about it. Yeah, let's look, look, let's look that one up. Um, but interoperability, I think it was, um, oh, it was Alex, Alex, I can't remember his surname, who tweeted about it this week because Eric Voorhees had talked about ThorChain and his ability to buy Bitcoin anonymously, uh, and he raised the issue, but interoperability is fraught with errors. Um, it looks like it's a bridge between Ethereum and Solana. Yeah. Ethernet and Solana. Ethernet and Solana. 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 Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is fraught with dangers of hacking. My assumption is all of these will have backdoors, blocks, uh, account blocks, the ability to refund, which was obviously we have immutability with Bitcoin, um, a massive honeypot for hackers to attack and figure out if they can steal this money and spend it. So for the listeners, let's make it, let's just simplify all this, what yeah. we're talking about with CBDCs and Bitcoin. It's, it's very black and white. Bitcoin is an open, trustless system. Everything else requires trust and counterparty risk. And in the past, we have bank failures, we have bank fraud, we have bank criminal activity, um, we have defaults, we have everything. You are going to see the exact same thing in the stablecoin era. It's, not, it's, it's no different. So let's not try to you know, make it more complicated than it actually is. You'll have banks that offer you know, a safe reserve ratio and good interest rates, and they'll maintain clients over decades. And then you'll have others that are just total scam artists and others that outright default because they take too much risk. 
and people will suffer losses and you don't have insurance mechanisms put in place for the stablecoin universe or anything close to it where like you have FDIC insurance for the first quarter million in checking account deposits in the United States today. So the insurance mechanisms, all that kind of stuff, it's, it's underdeveloped for stable coins. It doesn't really exist. And so you'll see losses. Well, won't the FDIC insure this in the same way? They will, but they haven't yet. Okay. Right? And that will take, it will take years. I mean, it'll take years to get all this stuff legislated. But yes, I do believe the FDIC will end up having a framework for stable coin deposit insurance. Because the issuing entities will have to be registered with the FDIC and pay into the insurance fund. It's an insurance fund. So they will have to pay insurance premiums to make sure they can put the FDIC logo on their uh, stablecoin app. So one of the things that I like about the current financial rails, financial systems, is that it's fragmented. So I have a, a bank account, and I have a debit card with them, I have a credit card, I have Bitcoin, and I have cash. I, I have all those assets available to me. So even here, if I come out to LA and, and for some reason my debit card doesn't work, I have my credit card. And look, if both of them didn't work, I could transfer Danny some Bitcoin and say, give me some cash. Like, and back in the UK, sometimes banks, their systems go down. This, you know, it just happens. And you know, maybe Barclays goes down one day and you can't access it, but I have my credit card. Like, it's fragmented. I worry in this system, beyond all the, the surveillance and obvious things, because I think it's going to be hard to avoid using part of the CBDC system. Um, I don't believe every shop's going to be accepting Bitcoin before they accept CBDCs. So you might be coerced into using it, but it feels like a more fragile system because it isn't so fragmented. Well, when we think about uh, forcing everybody into CBDCs, it, if the government says we will only take FedCoin, like the IRS says we'll only take FedCoin, for tax payments, then you're going to have to purchase it basically in your Wells Fargo app. You'll have to hit a button that says swap my Wells Fargo coin for FedCoin before I send it to uh, you know, the IRS. So it's not necessarily that you're driving everyone right away into FedCoin. It's that if you structure your system in a way that you only accept it for certain things, then you know, you'll point people in that direction. But my assumption is, whilst it's very clear that FedCoin will be a mass tool for mass surveillance, tracking every purchase, they'll have those records, uh, the banks will probably be put under pressure to provide the same surveillance tools. Yes, that, that, that's what I, and the banks already do that. So that's why we have this $10,000 rule. But if you really, you know, you just ask anybody anecdotally, if you go into the bank, uh, and try to take like $2,000 out, they're going to ask you all these questions. Yep. And here's something fascinating. I always that, say drugs and hookers. Yeah. <laughs> Vegas. Yeah. I, I, this is what I find fascinating now. I'm in, I'm in a physical bank branch maybe once every couple months for something. I like to use, use the app for as much as I can. Sometimes I actually have to go in there. Almost every time I'm in a bank now, I hear somebody trying to get their money out and then the teller is asking them 15 personal questions out loud and I can hear every answer. So if I'm like, you know, malicious, I can be recording every answer, everything, you know, the income, social security number. They're asking these things out loud to the people that are in the bank just to get 
a couple hundred dollars out or deposit this or transfer of this. Of their money. Of their own money. Of their own fucking money. That's right. So this is one of the things that's got me in trouble because I've, I've openly admitted that I've lied continually to the bank for years. Every single time they ask me what money's for, I always lie because I think it's none of their business. I ended up losing my bank account with lawyers because of this. I mean, I've told this a million times. Everyone's heard it, but I You're felt, too famous now, Pete. I, well, I just felt it's, I felt it's just none of your business. I had some call center person calling me up and te- asking me about my payments and what they were for and what I was doing. I was like, it's none of your business. I'm a, I'm a grown adult. I don't need to tell you. Like if you are, if you have a reason to be suspicious, then go to the police. That's right. But we're not in minority report. (laughs) And I think that, again, to bring it back to Bitcoin, this is why people want to keep their money in Bitcoin and Uh outside of the system because there's surveillance at every step of the way. And so, you know, your question was about will will the banks, the commercial banks be doing financial surveillance when they have their stablecoin? They're already tracking. They're already tracking everything. The intelligence organizations already have access to all payment data on credit card rails anyway. So everything is already tracked. And that's just the, the world that we live in. And Bitcoin is an option outside of that system. And I do think that it'll drive uh, a Bitcoin native economy. Lightning Network is something that we've talked about for a long time. Mm-hmm. A Lightning Network native economy where the money never leaves Lightning. And commerce is just happening all around the world instantly on Lightning. Never dollars, never even the blockchain, Bitcoin blockchain itself, just within this, within this network of instant commerce where there's no, there's no surveillance, there's no approval of transaction, there's no uh, cross-border fees or anything like that. Is the te- well, well, okay, let me go back a step. Do we know what technology people are using to develop these CBDCs and are they capable of handling the volume and the transactions? So we know, for example, Ethereum isn't particularly decentralized. We know why. Uh, my assumption is this blockchain won't be particularly decentralized. But do we have any idea of which rails they're testing on? Yeah, we do. We So we know that the central banks are, like the Fed, for example, the Boston Fed is working with MIT to... What, what do you mean the Boston Fed? That there, are, there are regional feds? Yes, there are regional Federal Reserve banks. I the, never knew this. Explain this to me. Okay, so the Federal Reserve Bank of New York is uh, where... Um, is considered the official central bank where they have the open market operations desk where they do QE out of and all that kind of stuff. That happens at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The Federal Reserve Bank has several branches around the country. Originally, what they were for is to basically be the distributors of paper money to and from commercial banks, where you'd need a Kansas City Fed, a San Francisco Fed, uh-huh. and you know a Dallas Fed to service the banks. Um, but in terms of outright independent policy from each other, that doesn't really exist. Um, the Fed banks are really there to support their local um, community of banks within that region. Um, but so the boss and every uh, Federal Reserve branch does their own research, for example. So right now at the Boston Fed, they've partnered up with MIT's blockchain labs. I can't remember the exact name to uh, explore FedCoin on official basis. And the Federal Reserve Board has basically acknowledged that we are 
following the Boston Fed's lead here to explore what we're going to do. So MIT is going to basically uh, be able to deliver the Fed the the right advice in terms of which technology to use. MIT is a Bitcoin forward institution, so they understand what uh, you know security uh, advantages Bitcoin offers over other blockchains. So I believe they're going to end up using a private, uh, non basically a non-blockchain, a non-proof of work, even a non-proof you know any any other system like that. They're not going to use that. They're going to use a, basically a private software, a glorified Excel spreadsheet that they know is tested, that works, and it's not open for anybody to really um, affect. Maybe you can audit it from the outside, like a read-only privilege, um, but in terms of being able to affect it, uh, no, I don't think So it probably to. won't even be a, a blockchain? I agree. I agree with that. I don't think it's going to be a blockchain in, in, in the way that a blockchain is a chain of blocks and a chain happens with a mining process. So I don't think that there's going to be anything like that. It's just going to be a distributed ledger. They love the term DLT because it doesn't, it doesn't have anything to do with mining, in which it doesn't. DLT, distributed ledger technology, is a shared Excel spreadsheet. It's a shared Google spreadsheet. There's nothing, there's nothing beyond it. Um, that's kind of how it works. And then the user interface will be, you know, of course, different than a Microsoft Excel. Before we carry on with the interview, I do have a quick message from my show sponsors. This show is brought to you by BlockFi. Now, BlockFi bridges the world of traditional finance and Bitcoin, empowering you for this future financial world. And for people in the US who own or are interested in owning Bitcoin or stacking more sats, then the BlockFi Rewards credit card provides the easiest way for you to earn Bitcoin. There are no fees to use this card, no annual fee, and no foreign transaction fees. And you can get 3.5% back in Bitcoin on all purchases in your first three months and then 1.5% back forever after. And also for every dollar you spend over 50,000 annually, you can get 2% back in Bitcoin. Now, if you want to stack stats with BlockFi, then please head over to BlockFi.com for more information and to find out the terms and conditions. This is BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Next up, it is Compass Mining, and they are not just a sponsor. I am a customer of Compass Mining. I am mining with Compass Mining. Now, I've been doing this for about, wow, what is it, like four months now, and I've mined over half a Bitcoin with them. It's pretty cool. It's very cool, actually. I love the fact that I'm back mining, and I also love the way Compass does this. They've made mining accessible to everyone, and as a Bitcoiner, I'm happy to be supporting the decentralized growth of the hash rate. It was so easy to get onboarded, and now anyone can mine Bitcoin. You just pick your machines, choose your hosting facility, and they do all the rest of the work for you. Now, if you are interested in mining, or if you want to find out more, then please head over to compassmining.io. That is C-O-M-P-A-S-S-M-I-N-I-N-G dot I-O. Next up, it is BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking for companies in the Bitcoin industry, and yes, of course, I am a BCB customer too now. Now, they heard about the difficulty I was having finding a new bank, and they understand Bitcoin. So when they reached out to me and said, Pete, you should move your account over to BCB Group, I was like, sure. Sounds absolutely perfect for me. And I could not be happier with the service they have provided me. Now, BCB clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe. But they are now expanding globally. 
They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know some of you have also had trouble with your banking. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also today, we have Ledger, the world's most popular hardware wallet. Now, listen, in Bitcoin, we have this saying, right? Not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin holder, it is your money and it's time for you to own it. And if you're not storing your Bitcoin on a hardware wallet, then you are trusting somebody else. I took control of my Bitcoin back in 2017 when I bought my first Ledger Nano S and I'm still using that same device today. Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. Now, if you would like to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. <sighs> are there, if we're going to be honest and fair, are there any upsides to CBDCs that we should recognize? Well, think about the social impact of universal basic income to those who, who need it. They are going to be, first of all, they're going to have an easier time collecting benefits people that need universal basic income, but they're also now going to be able to vote themselves more benefits in a more direct and easier way. So when I always like to use quantitative easing as the, as the opposite example, when the Fed does, okay, when the economy is going into recession, now what the Fed does is they'll do QE, which means they create reserves, issue them to the banks and hope that the banks lend that money to the public. And that's their form of stimulus. But if they're issuing Fed coins directly to mom and pop, you don't have any risk that the monetary policy doesn't transmit. Basically, you're guaranteed for it to transmit to the people. That's an advantage to people that hope the Fed will help them. They have been looking on the outside, looking at stocks going up, and saying, what the fuck? You're only helping asset owners. You're not actually helping people. Where's my small business loan? The Fed's QE does none of that, accomplishes none of that. And so from the perspective of the people that need and, and desire stimulus when the government is issuing it, those people will benefit from a Fed coin. So that's like one one thing that I would say, step into the shoes of people that need uh, a form of universal basic income, which I'm not going to take either side of it politically. What I know is that UBI is here. It is, it is absolutely here. It's with us. I have a four-year-old. I receive $300 a month from the government for the fact that I have a child. I didn't ask for that money. I didn't apply for it. And I'm someone of means. So it's not like I've, I'm on some, you know. Is uh, this new? This is over the, over the past several months, since the pandemic. And, and that just, wow. So every child now in America gets I don't it. know if it's every family that's receiving this or how much they're receiving it. All I know is that I get a direct payment into my checking account of $300 from the government. I get an email that notifies me that I've received the payment and it's called the child tax credit. And it's because, yeah. I mean, we have something in the UK... A child allowance, it's, um, it's a lot smaller. It's like 20 pound. I don't know if it's a week or a month. 
Um, but this is something brand new. Okay. Uh, and it is issued by the Treasury Department. Huh. Okay. And so you think there's going to be expansion of that? Oh, it's not, a, it's not that I think. You know. UBI is here to stay. It's going to grow. We have examples around the world um, that central banks and governments will borrow from. And, um, and I think that, listen, I actually think that a future with UBI, instead of uh, the million other ways that the government steals money from point A and gives it to point B, I actually think UBI would be an improvement over some of that. And that would be assuming that other programs get funneled back into UBI and the money actually just goes straight to people. No uh, subsidies, no you know, direct benefits for XYZ, but just actually money to people. I think it could marginally be an improvement. Well, one of the arguments for universal basic income is that uh, social security programs, welfare programs, there's so many different programs out there that you eliminate a lot of the cost and the bureaucracy of running them. I spoke to Erika Rhodes about this. I, I might be wrong, including social security in that. I'm not sure. but Yeah, I, I mean, I would generally speaking agree with that, that it would uh, improve the logistics for the government for them to be able to give this money. And so if if we're changing the distribution of money from the banks out via loans to people directly into the wallets of the people who need it. Um, with a great example, of what happened during the pandemic is that that should, I, I don't know if it's going to, it's not going to reduce the wealth divide, but it's going to reduce the speed at which the wealth divide has grown because of the Cantillian effect. It's, it's hard to say what it's going to do to the wealth divide. It definitely, um, it definitely gets people money in their pockets quicker that need it, but the long-term impacts are uh, unknown, meaning that it could drive inflation for the people that uh, it's most dangerous for uh, to the point where it, it, and it ends up uh, making the wealth divide even worse. So it's, it's, not, it's not a good thing that we'll have more UBI or that it'll replace other programs. It's just... Um, it, it does change kind of who benefits first and or that first order of effect of the stimulus. And are you putting that $300 a month into Bitcoin for your daughter? <laughs> stack, you know, stack, stack stats and, and stay humble all the way. <laughs> so uh, CBDCs are here and coming and they're inevitable. Yeah, and really, you know, the conclusion of layered money is called freedom of currency denomination. And that is really what I believe that we are, we're going to have, we do have now an option in, in terms of how to store our money. We can have it in paper. We could have it at the checking account level. We can have Bitcoin only. We could have some Tether. We could have a portfolio of securities. We could have a Robinhood app. And we have choice now in terms of how we are going to store our money. I believe that choice, at least at the very minimum here in the U.S., is going to stay with us. And we will continue to have that choice. So you'll have FedCoin, JP Morgan Coin, Bitcoin, Tether, and you'll have to choose and you'll have the right. You have the right to choose how to denominate your labor, your earnings, your savings. And I think that's the future that we're in for is this uh, era of currency choice. And thank God for Bitcoin. Yeah. And in some ways, it, this, this parts of this sound better, this kind of like, 
era of free banking within a CBDC environment, there are some things about that that you think about and think, well, there are upsides to that. Yeah, you know, the when you think about also like Alex Gladstein is talking a lot about Tether yeah. and uh, it's and the benefits for people outside of United States and using a stable coin that is superior to other things that they have access to or other savings vehicles. And they might not, they might want prefer Tether over Bitcoin because it doesn't have the same volatility for their daily transactions. That is a, that's a benefit. That is a, a benefit to people that that tool is available to them. I can't directly say like that uh, a Fed coin will benefit people outside of the United States or anything like that. But we know that all of these instruments are just giving people choice. It does present risk and introduce additional risk, but it also presents choice. And over time, you know, the, the, the strong survive. Okay, what do you think it means for dollarized nations like Ecuador and El Salvador? Will they then have to issue their own, like, I don't know, El Salvador dollar on a, on a blockchain? Potentially. Yeah. Potentially they'll have to issue, they'll have to have their own stable coin and maybe the bank can, you know, the, the government itself can acquire dollar reserves, put them in a bank and issue them on top of the Chivo app as a dollar coin, you know, side by side with the Bitcoin balance. Uh, it's something that's very possible. And what kind of time frame do you think we're looking at for these Fed coins being a realistic part of society? Yeah, so I think the ECB will launch some sort of digital euro beta, actually have banks test it within the next year. Wow. I think we're pretty close to the ECB launching some, some sort of beta project. The Fed is a couple years away. I think the Boston Fed and MIT will publish their report this year in terms of uh, steps forward. And then, you know, over the next couple of years, we might see a pilot. But over the, within then, say, five years, they might be a mainstay of... Pop- within yeah. five years, I think we'll have a Fed coin. Wow. Live, okay. being used in your wallet. Uh, what should we be scared about with this? What should you be scared about with Fed coin? Um, the, the surveillance, I think, is okay. the only thing that we need to be scared about because if we have choice, we can just choose not to use it. And so uh, I do envision that if you, uh, and, I, and I think like going back to the IRS example, when the IRS is collecting taxes, they'll say, we, we accept Fed coin, but oh, by the way, we'll also accept Wells Fargo and JP Morgan coin because we know that they'll give us all your information too. <laughs> so uh, we, we won't be able to avoid the surveillance just by not owning FedCoin. But I think, you know, that's probably the thing that we need to be scared of for the most. But it, it will, I do think it does give the dollar more runway and, uh, you know, over the next couple of decades. And what about synthetic dollars, programmatic dollars issued on Lightning? I've heard rumors of people working on such projects. Do you think that's a reality? I mean, stable coins issued on Lightning is a reality. Okay. And it's something that I saw an interview uh, a couple months ago about this, and I really agreed with um, the person who was saying that uh, Lightning is a transactional network. And so if you can, it doesn't matter what you link to it behind, it's still going to have counterparty risk uh, of the issuer, but using the Lightning rails to send stable coins, for sure. Okay. 
Wow, I didn't realize it was coming this soon. CBDCs are definitely coming. Remember, China has launched theirs already. It's live. Um, and it's being used in certain parts of the country. And, uh, that, and China is going to use it as a geopolitical tool to spread their influence across the world. Africa, different parts of Asia, Latin America, uh, companies that want to do business with China uh, in international trade will have to use digital renminbi to transact at some point over the next few years. The United States, the United States will be, feel threatened by that and they'll have to respond accordingly uh, to try to get countries not to basically have to purchase digital renminbi or accept it and hold it on account with the People's Bank of China. So there's a lot of geopolitical uh, stuff that is going to unfold with China being first that the Fed and ECB won't be able to ignore. And, um, you know, if you, read, if you read what's coming out of the Boston Fed and, and even Jerome Powell, they know um, that a Fed coin is coming. It's just going to take them a little bit of time. <sighs> well, one weapon that the U.S. government has, if they choose to use it, is promote the adoption of Bitcoin. That's right. Um, and I do think that USA is extremely Bitcoin friendly yep. as, a, as a nation. Um, even, even when you hear all the... The, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt surrounding the energy complex and, and Bitcoin mining and volatility and all that, that's just coming from pockets of the media or certain politicians or certain bankers. But when you look at Americans, Americans own Bitcoin, they want Bitcoin, they work for Bitcoin companies, they own shares in Coinbase, which is issued in the United States. They own shares of an ETF, which is regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, which has an 80-year history of legal precedent. So Bitcoin is fully legal, embraced, and supported by the United States of America, even though we'll still have people that are screaming anti-Bitcoin rhetoric. Senator Warren. <laughs> she's, she is... Um, A fucking idiot. She's phenomenal in the way that she spins the, you know, just the narrative out there. Like supermarkets are really to blame here for inflation. Yes. Um, pretty ridiculous. Yes. Uh, I think it was a real shame. There, were, there was a time a few years back where I kind of appreciated her because she was challenging Wall Street. Uh, she went to town on Mnuchin when his appointment happened. And uh, she she was rightly saying that the the White House or the Wall Street had, had a, an arm within the White House. And I thought, huh, sounds like she gets it. So I, I do, um, I was told a story that w Senator Warren, um, it has been briefed by altcoin projects to basically be anti-Bitcoin in, in an anti-proof-of-work sort of way. And not in, in a way that some staffer has just come and said, but that she's read She's read documentation that shows this is why you have to say this and that to be against Bitcoin because it has proof of work, because our project will benefit if that happens. So it, she's just another politician, and I wouldn't make too much out of what any one politician says because you don't know what lobbyist has gotten to them first. And um, you, know, you should be skeptical of every politician on, on, on both sides of the aisle when it comes to Bitcoin rhetoric and really look at what people and companies are doing. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I think we're way, way beyond the point where the US government ever bans Bitcoin. It's impossible. Too, yeah, it's too integrated in society. There's too many jobs affected. There's so much net wealth affected. I don't actually think there are that many people who want to. I think it's more they want to surveil it. That's right. They just want to track. What are you spending? Are you paying your taxes? And, you know, Bitcoin is also scary to the establishment because it's a non-government entity. And we are, and the internet is too. So that's why they're scared of the internet and freedom of speech on the internet because the internet doesn't have a ruler. It doesn't have a jurisdiction. And so Bitcoin is in the same, so we can expect fear, uncertainty, and doubt to be, you know, thrown at Bitcoin just as it's being thrown uh, at all these people on the internet that are expressing their opinion. They're not trying to disseminate misinformation they're trying to express an opinion. And that's, you know, what speech is. Bitcoin is a form of speech. Cryptography is a form of speech that the, you know, the U.S. justice system has, uh, you know, allowed for it. In 1999 ruling basically said that cryptography is just like if an economist was using math. It's a tool and uh, they should be able to express their view through cryptography. Code, code is speech. I'm sorry? Is it the statement coded speech? Yeah, exactly. Coded speech is taken from this idea that uh, this 1999 court ruling. And we also have other things in in favor of Bitcoin at the moment. We have uh, a number of politicians who are also pro-Bitcoin. We have Senator Lamas on our team, but we also have uh, a number of politicians uh, across uh, the US. Josh Mandel recently came out very supportive of Bitcoin. Think of it like this. If we found an element, a new element on the periodic table, we called it like Bitcoin, Bitcoinium, let's say. And we found Bitcoin. Avatar 4. Yeah, exactly. We found Bitcoinium and it was found under, you know, off the coast of California in the Pacific Ocean. And then, uh, you know, somebody, a Mexican team found it off of the coast of Mexico. And people started finding Bitcoinium and then they started using it in technology and it worked. It was a good technology and it helped. How do, you, how do you come in and try to be anti-Bitcoinium? It's just an element that came from the earth. So Bitcoin, I think of it like the same thing. How can you be anti-Bitcoin? It's just a piece of code. It's just a software that we found. It's a tool that works. It's like, let's not use the wheel because it, uh, it's new. It doesn't make any sense. And so, of course, you have pro-Bitcoin politicians because they're just, they're just pro-people uh, and pro-innovation. Well, also the game theory's changed. With so many people owning Bitcoin, and a number of the politicians have figured out the hack. Oh, if I'm a pro-Bitcoin politician, I suddenly get 10, 20, 30,000 more followers who are all behind me and support me. That's the politics side, and you'll definitely see that here in the U.S., especially where people, it doesn't cost you anything to be pro-Bitcoin. You'll just get uh, you know, a good, a healthy following, just like your your Bedford Club, and, and invited on a bunch of Bitcoin, uh, Bitcoin podcasts. Yeah, well, that it is actually the same game theory. Yeah, it is. You know, you become part of this growing thing. But I stand by this point that uh, if there's any fears over uh, China and China's influence and what they're doing, is the more Bitcoin which is owned by the United States or people within the United States, is that that strengthens the United States because. We know on a long enough time frame, Bitcoin continues to go up in value as more people adopt it. So the net wealth of the country will accelerate quicker than the net wealth of China. 
And why do you think that Bitcoiners are here in the United States? They are starting companies here. They are not shy about it. They are, um, lo- they are supporting political candidates to argue their position. And so Bitcoin, you know, America is the home of Bitcoin. It really is. And um, it is because we identify that if we have it here, it's going to benefit the country in the long term because the people and the companies inside the country have and use Bitcoin. Which is why educating politicians is actually super useful. Some people like ignore them. I think actually educating them. I mean, I want it in the UK. You know, we have a chance now uh, post-Brexit to be a leader in the support of Bitcoin and having a Bitcoin economy. I just don't think our politicians have recognized that yet. Yeah, it, it it's going to be tough because politicians are focused on a lot of things, but there are good efforts and we're in the beginning stages of Bitcoin still. It's, it really is the beginning, but uh, you, know, you will see 2022 cycle be influenced by Bitcoin, I think, materially for the first time. And uh, it'll only increase going forward. Okay, so what do you think happens to smaller countries, countries where uh, currencies are less stable, collapse? Do you think as we move forward the next five years, do you think some of them will start to maybe dollarize with something like Fedcoin? Or yeah. do you think they're all going to start introducing their their own CBDCs? Because I can't, who was it, Danny? Do we remember who said that there will be, they think there'll only be seven, eventually only seven currencies? It might have been Balaji, but I could be wrong with that. Yeah, somebody said there will only be seven currencies. There'll be the dollar, the pound, the euro, the yen, um, maybe the Canadian dollar, another Bitcoin and... So I, I roughly agree with that approach where I think cu- currencies will die and countries will go basically El Salvador, where El Salvador ditched their own currency for the dollar years ago. And uh-huh. then they did, you might see companies, uh, countries do both at the same time. So like Turkey's currency is collapsing. If it continues to completely collapse, they just go, we're going to do a dollar, a dollar slash Bitcoin and replace the lira tomorrow that that would be interesting and so i think that what you'll see is countries with outright currency collapse will end up dollarizing and then have maybe bitcoin as an option b but countries that have really really weak currencies will do the el salvador where they do the parallel bitcoin thing at the same time to try to maybe strengthen their currency because if there's if if bitcoin is legal then in that country then um It'll attract people and then they'll have to use Bitcoin and the local currency and that'll maybe support it. But I do think that weaker currencies will absolutely die in this stablecoin, Bitcoin world that we have where the, the, the foreign exchange traders are also, also totally ruthless in attacking currencies that, um, you know, just look at the lira right now. Look at what happened to the Argentine peso. Uh, these these countries they can't do anything to fight with the with the onslaught of the foreign exchange traders that you know basically recognize a weakness. But Argentina has been through this cycle again and again: currency collapse after currency collapse, and high inflationary period after high inflationary period. But they always come back to. Well, it's a powerful and a rich country, so they have the ability to replenish you know, replenish their system because they have natural resources, et cetera. It might not be the case in really small countries that, um, you know, I'm not calling Turkey a small country, but I'm thinking certain African nations uh, and other Latin American nations that, um, you know, might have to introduce a Bitcoin parallel standard 
just to stay afloat in the global economy because it's so competitive out there for business. Okay, so what happens to gold in this environment? I think gold is dead. I mean, I think gold maintains this idea that it will maintain store of value, but it's dead in terms of you'll never have a a gold-anchored monetary system again, and you'll never have a country say, we're going to do a uh, gold-backed currency. I just think that that's never, ever going to happen. And uh, a lot of gold bulls bet on gold because they think that one day a country, maybe the U.S. or somebody else, will do a new gold standard. I absolutely disagree. I think that's never going to happen. Because it's, the it's, problem's previous, it's centralized. Yeah, I mean, we tried gold. The layered money is about this attempt to have gold anchor monetary system. It worked pretty well for 700 years and then basically broke down and it'll never be tried again. And you think, what kind of... Um what kind of certainty do you or percentage do you put on that we get into a gold uh, Bitcoin standard or, we, or is it just, it will? It, do you think it's inevitable? Uh, I don't think any Bitcoin standard is coming in an official capacity in United States, Europe, etc. I think it's a natural Bitcoin standard Bitcoin, and, it, yeah. and it happens, um, you know, it happens slowly but surely. And sometime over the next, uh, let's call it 10, 10 years, you'll have half the population half the world's population that owns or has some exposure or uses Bitcoin in their, so like three, you know, three, four billion people in the next 10 years. Well, the, the interesting thing about Bitcoin standard, I, I think I was talking about this on a show the other day. It was like a, a real light bulb moment for me was that um, you don't have to have an official Bitcoin standard. You can option yourself on it. I'm on a Bitcoin standard. My podcast is on a Bitcoin standard. My football team's on a Bitcoin standard. I assume you're on a Bitcoin standard. Uh, so the more of us that do this, it, it, it's a standard that grows organically. It becomes its its own thing. That was a real light bulb moment for me. I was like, ah, oh, okay, yeah. And and because it's organic, you can't you can't you can't get rid of it. You can't get rid of it, and you can't stop people from when they recon- like game recognize game. When you recognize somebody else that will do business with you forever on Lightning you'll never use the dollar with that person ever again and you'll never have transaction fees ever again and you can transact around the world with each other. And that's how Bitcoin standard grows. So I have a few readers of my publication on Substack, the Bitcoin layer, that email me. I'm not suggesting everyone do this, but (laughs) people have done this. They email me and they say, hey, uh, this article, this one article is behind the paywall. Can I send you a can I send you like three bucks on Lightning, so I can read this article? And he sends it to me, and I email him the article behind the paywall, and and that's it. And he's he's and I have people that have a Lightning they they pay my subscription via Lightning Network thanks to OpenNode uh, uh, integration with Substack that they did. So I'm accepting Bitcoin, and I I obviously don't uh, swap that Bitcoin for dollars. I keep it. Um, but you have people that are like, hey, I know you will accept my Lightning. I don't want to pay a monthly subscription. I'd rather just pay you three bucks, Lightning. You know, uh, so you know, I just invoice him 5,000 sats, 6,000 sats, and he sends it to me and I email, I email him the article. You, and need, you need Substack to introduce, integrate that as well. I'm working on that. You are I'm working, working on, on them, yes. So I, uh, I did my first uh, open node purchase of something via the web store for my football club this morning. 
Excellent. So we integrated OpenNode into uh, our Shopify. Yeah. And yeah, I did the test this morning. It was so smooth. Yeah, it works quick. It works quick. It's a great interface. And um, with all credit due to the OpenNode guys, this is really Lightning Network that we're seeing in 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 real time. It the user experience of being able to send and receive Bitcoin instantly via Lightning is incredible. Whether you're using OpenNode or another Lightning Network uh, platform. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, obviously, I had the option on there of Basechain and, and Lightning. I tested both. Plugging in your hardware wallet and sending the payment, it's just not as smooth as getting your phone up, scanning the QR code and doing it. I also, I think it was OpenNode I used to buy a McDonald's in El Salvador. Yeah. Is that correct? They're the, I know they're the processor for McDonald's. I was, I was amazed that it was built into those terminals. Yeah, I can't, McDonald's. I can't wait to go. It's, well, it was insane because like uh, on the morning it happened, we were filming. And so it was like, okay, we're going to go to Starbucks and we're going to McDonald's. We're going to test this out. And both did it in different ways. Uh, uh, part of the Starbucks experience was slightly smoother because they just stand there with a thing and hand it to you. And they've obviously in uh, McDonald's, they wanted to build it into the terminal. So, yeah, they had a slightly different process. Right. But the fact that it got built into the terminal, I was like, well, how does this happen? Because these terminals and the software must be issued centrally by McDonald's. So therefore, did they have to go to McDonald's HQ to get this added in? I no longer have the inside scoop on how they did that. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I'll, I'll ask them myself. But no, it was more of like a, it was like a process I was going through in my head. It's like, well, if they did, therefore, McDonald's HQ are now aware of Bitcoin payments can be done via their terminals. How difficult would that be something for them to roll out to McDonald's globally? And this is what I uh, struggle with sometimes with the short-term thinking out there uh, and, and Bitcoin's price volatility. Look at the future ahead of us. McDonald's is using Bitcoin uh, yes. in El Salvador in one tiny country. And it's just one small example of how the world is going to evolve to a Bitcoin standard. It's not going to be legislated. It's just going to evolve that way where people will go up to the terminal and they'll have to make a decision every time. Am I going to spend my Bitcoin or am I going to spend my dollars? And do you know what? The interesting thing about that is when you're traveling, actually sometimes it's easier to spend your Bitcoin. Yeah. yeah. When I used to go to El Salvador, it's like, oh, I need to get some money out. Where do I go to the cash machine? Yada, yada. Do I have dollars on me? Don't I? I don't actually need dollars in America anymore. Yeah, just uh, Sorry, El Salvador. One, one, and, and actually it would be more useful here. Like when you get off the plane, you get in the car and you go to the Starbucks drive-thru because you need a coffee. It's like, actually, if I could just scan my Lightning wallet, this would be super easy. Yeah. And the other thing is, they did it in three months. Announcement, live date three months later, McDonald's was ready. It's incredible. And Bitcoin really is, it's easy to implement because you don't have to actually, um, you don't have to trust anything but the network. So as long as you have the correct infrastructure the network behind it doesn't take any testing. It's been tested. Do, are, pe are people spending enough time thinking about Lightning? Yeah, Lightning is still really small, Pete. That's, I think uh, we are, I mean, I'm obsessed with Lightning because of what it can do and the potential, but on a relative size, Lightning's only like 100 million, it's on Clark Moody's dashboard if you could pull it up. But um, yeah, I think it's only like, 3,000 3, Bitcoins. And so it's, it's, it's super tiny. And people will underestimate Lightning Network because of how tiny it is. 
in size, but still the technological innovation behind it um, is going to drive a lot of Bitcoin adoption over the next several years. Got it, Danny? Yeah, it's 3,400 total capacity at the moment. So what's that? Well, that's that worth like $120 million, right? There's also, though, when you see the charts of the capacity, it's, go, it's just going up in one way. Yeah, it's going up, but it's still like less than a billion dollars. Bitcoin is 700 billion in market cap. So it's less than, I mean, <laughs> I mean it's less than a fraction of a fraction of a percent um, in terms of its size. But so that's why people just aren't getting, uh, I guess, globally as excited about it. But we identify this technology as a game changer for Bitcoin. So I think it's just going to... Adoption at the margin is going to happen with Lightning, like McDonald's. That's a Lightning integration at the same time as the as the uh, Bitcoin integration. So that I think will be repeated over and over again, and the Lightning network will grow because of it. And what, why are you obsessed with Lightning? What is it you see that maybe I don't see with it? When you have a currency that uses this ten-minute blockchain for settlement process, it's phenomenal for the store of value role but it doesn't make it work in an online, instantaneous way. So we live in an internet world. We want to be able to stream. I want to be able to stream you sats every second I listen to your pod. I can only do that with Lightning. I cannot do it with Bitcoin. So you have a million use cases that that open up with the instant settlement and non-mining process of Lightning network transactions. And you need the security of Bitcoin's blockchain to secure the asset. And you need this app called Lightning Network to transact it instantly. Once you've agreed with each other that we both have Bitcoin, we should be able to use it instantaneously with each other. It's the same thing of going from uh, you know, paper money to a Venmo balance where the paper money can't, it's not useful to, to, to in commerce. But the Venmo balance is because I can spend it instantaneously and one uses the other as its layer, right? In theory, Venmo has a pile of dollars in some bank, you know, PayPal, that they're using to back all this activity. Lightning is the same thing, but it uses Bitcoin and it doesn't use any counterparty. That's the game changer. That's why I wrote the time value Bitcoin in 2018. That's why I'm here because I wanted to share with the world that Bitcoin is transformed from a commodity to a currency thanks to Lightning Network. So it is a currency? It is now with Lightning. And do we need to, well, we definitely need some updates to the tax laws because that makes it problematic. I saw a $200, $200 exemption yeah. today. Um, so that's a good start. And we, we, need, we need stuff like that. And I think that that de minimis exemption is, I talked about it in my Austin keynote address at the Texas Blockchain Council. And uh, I know that some of the more prominent people that are trying to lobby Washington for the Bitcoiners are pitching this de minimis uh, as one of the first big things that we need to get Bitcoin commerce going in in the U.S. What else do we need, though? We um, We need more clarity across the money transmission laws. So we have 50 different states, and I... I know from experience that that's a huge challenge. Every single Bitcoin company has to do 50 different regulatory procedures. Yep. That, needs to be, that needs to be smoothed out. I think that's a big one, getting the states and the feds on the same page in terms of a regulatory framework. 
Um, and then what part of my mission is going gonna, is gonna to be helping define Bitcoin from a government's perspective. This whole idea of Bitcoinium or thinking of Bitcoin like water, which I saw on Twitter, or Bitcoin like, you know, the talk, metric. Talk me through that. Bitcoin well, like, uh, like uh, you know, you have your shitcoin will be Coke and your shitcoin B will be Pepsi, but you have water. It comes from the earth. It's not like, it's just an element. And that's why I use this, uh, you know, the periodic table example, or I like the metric system example as well, where, uh, I don't know if you want to Google this, but like the, uh, the kilometer is like, a, or the, I think it's from the North Pole to the equator is like exactly 10,000 or 1,000 kilometers. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's basically a, a mathematical truth. It's 10,000 kilometers. 10,000 kilometers from the North Pole to the equator, right? Yep. And so the Earth has these natural laws and things about it that we've identified as truth. And Bitcoin is one of these, it's, it's outside of anybody's control or anybody's creation, really. It's just math, and it's something that's an element here. And so if we can uh, promote this idea of Bitcoin being naturally occurring, as opposed to a creation, a man-made creation, um, then it starts, to, it starts to separate the politics of Bitcoin, where how can you be anti-water or anti the kilometer? It doesn't make sense. Or like anti-hydrogen. I know we have, we're anti-carbon now, but that's a, separate, <laughs> that's a separate issue. But you know what I'm trying to say here is that Bitcoin needs to be understood as something that's more naturally occurring and, not, and something that's apolitical. And I hope, that, I hope that's part of what I'm able to write about at the Bitcoin layer and elsewhere. It sounds like, therefore, when you've been able to focus on Bitcoin full-time research and writing that you're you're having more revelations yourself yes it it does and the uh engaging with readers and doing interviews like this is huge because um if i'm just sitting at home and reading i'm not engaging with ideas i'm just brainstorming right i uh -huh. like to go for drives and brainstorm articles and and things like that but until I'm sitting down with you and actually talking, some of the, like the Bitcoinium thing came out of my mouth in an interview as I'm trying to just give an example. And, and so, um, you know, the engagement with uh, the readers and, and the interviews are, you know, that's what gets the, it's what takes the ideas and makes them more of a reality. Well, there, there are a lot of people who are starting to realize like Bitcoin is one of the most important ventures of our times. You know, uh, aligning it with the internet, yep. with with the microprocessors, with the light bulb, um, but we still have this mass production of shit coins every season. More shit coins. Um, uh, the further I go down the rabbit hole, the further I understand that shit coins are meaningless. Mm -hmm. But we still have this issue of trying to translate that to the wider people. So not only the shit coiners, but uh, my experience in uh, running the football club is there's a lot of media interest in Bitcoin now. They want to ask me questions about it. And I've realized how far away we are as people down this rabbit hole from them. And even trying to get the basics across is really super difficult. How, how do you get, think we get to that point where we where we cross that, where, where Bitcoin is ubiquitous? Is there a book that you could recommend to people to... I'll tell you what, have you read The Bullish Case of Bitcoin by VJ? <laughs> <laughs> 
maybe it's layered money, but like that's a, that's a big step to get somebody a book. You know, it it, it does take uh, a lot of time, and it is really tough to explain that. Oh, we have this new thing called Bitcoin, but also all the shit coins are pretenders. They're not going to replace Bitcoin. It it's a it's a long haul to get people to understand, but it just happens slowly and one by one. So do your best when you're out in the media, answer everyone's questions, you know, with a smile on your face and just try to explain to people and hopefully price is truth over the long term. People understand that Bitcoin still has survived. Ask anybody if they've, you know, heard of some of the coins that were popular four years ago, eight years ago. And, you know, as as a test, like, have you ever heard of this? No. Well, it was the number two cryptocurrency five years ago and it disappeared because this pattern happens all the time. Bitcoin is 13 years old. Pretty soon you'll be able to say Bitcoin is two decades old. How old are these other things? And so it just it just will take time. And it is tough to get people to read a book and say, learn about this Bitcoin. It's tough to get people to watch a 30 second YouTube video as well if they're just not ready for it. So um, myself, I've I've tried I've stopped going outbound and trying to convince people that Bitcoin is something that's something I used to do at the beginning of my Bitcoin rabbit hole in 2016. I'd tell everybody I know, every cocktail party, every family dinner, it's just me ranting about Bitcoin. Shut up, Nick. Yeah, I mean, honestly. But I stopped because people that are open to it are either long Bitcoin already or already reading about it. And, um, you know, the information is out there for people. It's whether they, they want to learn it now. Wow. Well, I always love talking to you. It's really great to be back. It's great to have you on the West Coast here. You've got a gorgeous setup. I know. I do love LA, despite its criticism of what people say. Every time I come back, I'm like, I do love it here. Listen, when I was in Texas, everyone said, so when are you moving to Texas? I'm like, have you seen, have you seen where I live? <laughs> You've been to California? <laughs> have you seen it? No, it is beautiful here. I love this ocean that we're, uh, we get to look at. Uh, and I, I love almost every part of California. I don't love everything about California, but all the parts, all the cities. We're going up to San Francisco, despite all its shit and problems. I'm going to enjoy the drive. Absolutely. Um, and I'm really glad you're doing another book. Uh, I want to brainstorm on that with you if you ever want to pick my brain. You know I like subject lines and titles. Absolutely, yeah. I, I will definitely lean on your feedback for it. Okay, well, listen, tell people where to get the book. Tell people where to follow you, Nick. And uh, Yeah. yeah. So everyone can find me and all my links at layeredmoney.com. That's the title of the book, Layered Money. Uh, you can uh, subscribe to my Substack publication at thebitcoinlayer.substack.com. The link's also at layeredmoney.com. And uh, I'm on Twitter at time value of BTC. We'll put it all in the show notes. Uh, definitely go and buy Nick's book and definitely sign up to his Substack. Uh, and I'm really happy, so happy for you that you've got to do this full time. Uh, I've, I've been doing it full time now for... I'm in my fifth year and it's an amazing life you get to live. You get to go out and speak to people and travel and learn more and educate people and support the Bitcoin mission. So I'm glad you get to do this full time. And uh, yeah, congratulations. You know anything I can do for you, you just reach out to me. I appreciate that, Pete. Peace and love. Peace and love, Ben. All right. Thanks for listening to What Bitcoin Did. If you want to get in touch, the best thing you can do is head over to my Telegram channel or you can hit me up on my email, which is hello at whatbitcoindid.com.